Hey, it's Liz Kelly. I want to tell you about our great football coverage on the Ringer Podcast Network. Every Monday, Bill Simmons and Cousin Sal recap the weekend and guess next week's NFL lines on the BS Podcast. On Wednesday mornings, Ryan Russillo hits the hardest angles in college and pro football on our new podcast, Dual Threat. And on Wednesday nights, Cousin Sal and the Degenerate Trifecta figure out the best gambling angles on Against All Odds. And five times per week, the Ringer NFL show reacts to the latest news with Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Tate Frazier, Mike Lombardi, and the Danacy football crew. Subscribe to the BS Podcast, Dual Threat, Against All Odds, and the Ringer NFL show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheBringer.com. And today on the pod, Allison Herman joined me to talk a little bit about the first four episodes of Maniac and about Maniac in general. Now, Zach Barron was on last week and we talked about Kerry Fukunaga, him taking over the Bond franchise. And we talked a little bit about Maniac, but I actually had only just seen the first episode. And I wanted to get a little bit more deeply into it because by four episodes, you kind of have a sense of the rhythm of this show. And, you know, it's interesting. Just as Allison was walking out of the office, we were talking about how many divisive shows there are, there have been this year. And, you know, they've got people who love Maniac, people who dislike Maniac, people who love Forever and dislike Forever. You've got people who are in or out on the first. So there's a lot of stuff out there that I think different people are having these really widely different reactions to, which is somewhat different from where we kind of started maybe five or six years ago, at least when we started this podcast back at Grantland, where there was this kind of like almost monoculture with television. And you had five or six shows that even if you didn't like it, you acknowledge, oh, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, The Wire, uh, Down Abbey, you know, all these shows were very good. And, and it's interesting now to be at a place where, I don't know, maybe you could even say that technically I think television is as good as it's ever been, but now you're getting these widely divergent reactions on a sort of aesthetic or personal taste basis. It makes talking about television that much more interesting because you can have two people in a room that just feel completely different about something. And, you know, it's like as if everything was Thor Ragnarok and it was me and Andy, but now it's about all of television. Um, it's a little throwback in case you're, you're a longtime watch listener. So Allison talked to me about the first four episodes of Maniac, and then we talked about the entire either first season or run of Forever, depending on whether or not Forever comes back. That's a show on Amazon starring Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen, uh, which I had mixed feelings about, but for the most part really liked. And then after Allison, I talked to Jason Concepcion because... There has been such a uh, deluge of uh, pictures and camera tests and leaked footage from Todd Phillips's The Joker set that I thought I would start reading a little bit about where the DC Comics cinematic universe was. And I thought it was really interesting what I found. I didn't do like any kind of deep Bob Woodward reporting here. I just read blogs. But it was really interesting to see how DC is kind of throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks right now in a time when Marvel is obviously got this five, 10, 20 year plan. And even though that Marvel is probably going to go through a lot of change with Downey and, and likely Evans stepping away from Captain America and Iron Man. And those were kind of like the, that was the spine of the MCU for a while. I do think that they have a very controlled slate. Everything kind of fits together. There's a sort of uniform look, no matter whether Ryan Coogler or Joe and Anthony Russo are directing it, you're going to get a kind of uh, a house style with Marvel. And with DC, it's pretty much the opposite. DC has not only broken the conventions of cinematic universe totally, where they're having multiple actors play multiple iterations of characters, but they're also hiring these pretty interesting filmmakers to give their takes on it. And after kind of going through what they went through with the Zack Snyder uh, situation and with the first few DC movies with Justice League and with uh, Batman versus Superman, they have now turned over their properties and their intellectual property to these, like a big variety of filmmakers from everybody from Todd Phillips, who's directed the Hangover trilogy, to Kathy Yan, who's only directed a short called Dead Pigs and now just doing uh, Birds of Prey, which is a Harley Quinn based movie. So, really interesting stuff happening with DC. I kind of ran through this slate of upcoming DC movies with Jason and asked him a little bit about where they're coming from. So Maniac Forever and DC Movies Today with Allison Herman and Jason Concepcion. I really, really, really want to get to Better Call Saul on Thursday. So 
I am going to find somebody to talk to me about Better Call Saul on Thursday because I think it's the best show on television. Until then, here's Allison Herman, and we'll be on later with Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. Allison, I wanted to have you on to talk about Maniac. I watched the first four episodes over the last couple of days. I assume you've watched the entire thing. I have. And I wanted to have you on mostly because you, you know, you wrote this really awesome kind of half critical essay, half profile of Patrick Somerville, who is the main writer on the show and co-creator, I think, with Carrie Fukunaga. Yes. And uh, the other reason was is that I feel like I need to unpack like how I feel about this show after a few episodes because I don't know why I I think that I have sort of a, a sort of pre-existing condition of my own where I, I kind of tend to dislike shows that are lodged inside of people's heads. I think that there's something about like having a kind of a reality and a consequences that also affects other people in real ways is the thing that I kind of particularly like from drama rather than something where it's like you learn a lot about a character and the character learns a lot about themselves, but it's all happening inside of their heads. Would the primary example of this be like Westworld where there are no stakes or? It would be Westworld. I think that that's an issue I've had with Legion. I think there were parts of, and I, I really, really like Leftovers, but there were parts of Leftovers where I felt like the amount of internalization that was happening started to make me lose true north as to what the show was trying to do. And uh, I think that 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 changed over the course of time with leftovers, but with Maniac, I kind of I kind of had like a little bit of a chip on my shoulder going into it, and I was I don't know if I would say pleasantly surprised as much as I was blown away by the overall product that I saw. Right? Interesting. Yeah, I think I'm a little cooler on this than you are. Part of the reason why, instead of publishing a full review, we went with this uh, interview with Patrick Somerville is I almost find the creative origin story and development process of the show more interesting and unique in the context of overall culture than the content of the show itself, which is actually not necessarily a diss. And you brought up Legion, and Legion is in many ways the most logical comparison Mm -hmm. of the show. The production design looks very similar. The concept of exploring mental illness and addiction through the context of a psychiatric medical setting is also shared. But conceptually or critically, you know, no matter how many self-important letters Noah Hawley writes to the TV critic (laughs) community, Uh I think one of the things I actually really like about Legion is that, at least in the first season, it kind of compensated for a lot of visual ambition by keeping its narrative ambition very straightforward and... Not lower, but I liked that it offset the fact that the visuals were so showy with the fact that the narrative was a very simple, like, boy meets girl, boy discovers superpowers at the same time as girl does. And Maniac almost surprised me in the sense that this was marketed as, like, it's going to be so trippy and weird. Yeah, yeah. You know, you hear, you're averse to things inside people's heads. I'm very averse to just— causing the audience to question reality or not know what's going on just for the sake of it and getting sure. credit for that as as a proxy for profundity. And Maniac, I actually think it's very simple. Like, Jonah Hill's character, Owen, who, along with um, Emma Stone's Annie, is one of the two main focuses, he's schizophrenic. And one of the things I was kind of wary of when they introduced him as a character is like, oh, are we just going to get a whole show that's him questioning what's real, but also us questioning what's real? And I actually think it's pretty easy to say, okay, so this like version of his brother played by Billy Magnuson, who he sees everywhere, is very clearly not the actual version of his brother. Who's fantastic on the show, yeah. And who is so great, yes. We should talk about the supporting cast later. Like, you can tell what is a delusion for Owen and what is real, and then once they go into the context of this experiment, the setup which I talked to Somerville about, is basically like, as a proxy for therapy, these people are given pills and then they just enter into their subconscious and work out their issues that way in a clinical setting. Sure. And when you're a writer or director or a movie star, it's very clearly very exciting to be like, okay, we have this ostensible setting, but actually we can do literally whatever we want in any genre. Yeah. And once you start doing that, you know, you obviously know this is not the real world, even in the context of the show. And you could follow it from there. Sure, absolutely. I think that it's not that I want every show to be the night of. It's just that there's there's a kind of limitation to the limitless sometimes. You know, there's like an emotional limitation to my investment in this these hallucinatory kind of explorations of basically using genre as a kind of a skin to put on for a brief period of time to kind of explore trauma and explore these psychological wounds that the characters have experienced. And I think Maniac does some very interesting things with it, 
But for the most part, what my attachment to the show is, is that I think the writing is quite good. And I think the world building is phenomenal, given the fact that, you know, we're always talking about how long or how compressed people are you know, using time in uh, television now because you can do 10 hour ep- 10 one hour episodes, you can do four one hour episodes, you can be on for seven years, or you can start and come back in 18 months. Like there's all this variance going on with how we ex- process and experience television and how we watch television. Some people watch Maniac in one sitting over the weekend. I've watched four. But one thing that you can tell right away is that the level of detail that Fukunaga and Somerville and the rest of the people involved with the creative process of the show is that they have thought through every single thing from the outfits to the background props to the way in which uh this sort of parallel universe in which technology has both developed past where we are in 2018 but also stopped somewhere in the late 90s has kind of shaped who we are and i thought that that combined with just the cinematic energy with which Fukunaga presents things, you know, even like a simple act of a woman walking down a street, smoking a cigarette and putting um, missing dog flyers up on a light pole. He is able to shoot in, in a way that kind of is as, as invigorating as Martin Scorsese shooting a gangster walking into a bar, you know? Yeah, I was talking about this with Kate Hallowell, um, an editorial assistant at The Ringer. We both almost felt that something was lost once it entered into the delusional space just because, like, the delusions in that context tend to be pretty straightforward genre homages, whether there's a kind of Cohen-esque caper in Long Island Mm -hmm. involving a lemur, there's a little bit of a gangster thing, there's, like, a 1940s flashback thing. But when you're actually in the world of Maniac, that's really fun to spend it's time awesome. in and figure out yeah. figure out the rules. You're in this world that's like if like Blade Runner had happened, but we had stayed in the Paris like the Paris Accords. And like speaking of Blade Runner, <laughs> I do need to say that when we saw the Jonah Hill's character's micro apartment, where there's literally like a menacing neon advertising <laughs> sign outside, and also the conglomerate that administers this experiment is like a faceless like Japanese owned thing. Mm-hmm. I was a little like, okay, guys, we get it. <laughs> and Emma Stone's like slurping noodles and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I just I, but the environmental stuff hasn't quite gotten to the apocalyptic levels of always night, always raining, like it is in in Blade Runner. So. I mean, the weather doesn't look great. No, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't look great now either. So that's true. Um, I wanted to talk about, like, you know, you mentioned Blade Runner. We've talked about Coen Brothers. Somerville, I think, has mentioned Raising Arizona as an inspiration for the Lemur episode, which happens a couple in. Uh, we're talking up through four here. Uh, one of the, the energy of the second one really reminded me of Punch Drunk Love for some reason. Wow, high praise. Yeah, just the doc shop kind of had like a, a kinda, almost a vibe of like the Philip Seymour Hoffman mattress salesman. Uh, and just her energy and uh, the way in which she kind of was like barreling through her day had that kind of, it had a sort of PTA vibe to it. It's hard to put my finger on, but I, it was really, really exciting to watch. I really loved Windmills, which is the second one, and I thought Julia Garner was great in her appearance as, as uh, Annie's sister, Ellie. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting comparisons, I think besides Legion, the other show I was thinking of a lot when I was watching this was actually Forever, which is this Amazon show yeah. that's very recent. And I mentioned the kind of origin story of Maniac being really interesting. So Fukunaga, Hill, and Stone were signed on first, and Somerville actually came on later. And which it's is an adaption of a Danish show? A Norwegian. Norwegian show. But like the Norwegian show is basically they just took the concept of being in a medical setting and having having things that are not real that you could kind of slip in at any time. And okay. then they basically reinvented the world outside of that, the characters. They changed it from a, an asylum to a drug trial, mm-hmm. all of that. But the director and star's first writer later is kind of an inversion of how TV has historically worked. Sure. And Forever is also— that show started with Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen saying, we want to make a show together and we want us to star in it. And then they basically just like— went to writers and were like, okay, what vehicle can you come up with that we would be in? And as such, the show is literally designed as a showcase for those two performers in a way that Maniac is also designed as a showcase for Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. And I think also in both cases, the critical response has very much been the female half of that duo has gotten a little more buzz or praise for what she does with that performance. And I think you're right. I think Emma Stone is so great in a similar way to how Maya Rudolph really walks away with forever. Yeah, and I, she actually gets to she actually gets to do a little bit more uh, emotional 
gymnastics inside of the Annie character before she starts like pro- being projected into these sort of fantasy worlds. Then I think Jonah does. Jonah kind of is like very locked down and, and buttoned up and kind of all, in, he's, he's internalizing a lot and a lot of it is almost like this stunned character who's barely hanging on to the thread of reality in his real life anyway. So it's like she gets to definitely have material that is more of a trampoline, you know, and she gets to do stuff like the her father in that void machine. The weird thing that looks like a toy car. Yeah. It looks like a child's bed that's shaped like a race car, but with a ventilation attached yeah, to it. Yeah, and it's unclear yeah. as to whether that's, I mean, it's called a void, and it's like a void, and, and I obviously it's some sort of like trauma or loneliness device where he doesn't have to like experience the outside world, but it's like hooked up with hoses in his backyard. And I don't know. I mean, there's all these little uh, embellishments like that that I thought were really interesting. Um, But part of the joy of this show isn't just Jonah and Emma, but it's like everybody around them and all these sort of wild characters that they come into contact with. It is funny how the actor-first mentality really does trickle down. As much as it is about Jonah and Emma's characters, it very much widens the circle. So, actually, one of the things I really liked about the season is the way it paces itself out. Not slowly, again, similar to Forever. Forever doesn't have its premise at all in place until episode three. Right. This also, you know, episode one is for Jonah, episode two is for Emma, episode three is like they start the trial. And then, you know, certain pretty important characters, I don't believe we've gotten to the point where Justin Theroux and Sally Field join the main cast, right? Yeah, Justin joins in the beginning of four, Uh and I think Sally Field comes in in five. But those are two huge names, and I'm sure they are names that felt empowered to sign on because the top of the cast was already of such a high caliber. But those are already big stars. And then you get figures like Billy Magnuson, who I think is— Maybe in the process of crossing over from that guy to, oh, that guy. So where would people have recognized him from? Oh, God. He was in Ingrid Goes West. I believe it was the Vulture Review that described him as a douche of many colors. He <laughs> loves to—or he I don't know if he loves to play them, but he tends to play, like, douchebags. Yeah. Uh, so that is a very memorable douchebag. He plays the brother of Elizabeth Olsen's character. And then the other, I think— emerging performer who's going to get a really big lift from this is Sonoya Mizuno, mm-hmm. who plays the technician. And she's very emblematic of the show's very comic book styling. She has this triangle wig and big glasses and constantly has a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. She kind of looks like an, a live-action anime character. Yeah. And weirdly, uh, people might actually most recognize her from Annihilation, where she was not playing herself, but she was a uh, sort of cybernetic alien double, I don't know, spoilers for Annihilation. Um, (laughs) Yes. But yeah, she's a dancer. She was in Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, She was in Ex Machina, Alex Garland's first movie. And this is kind of the first big role where she is recognizable, but displaying range, but really like crucial to the action. And she's going to be in Alex Garland's show for FX, correct? Right. I'd forgotten about that. Now I'm very much looking forward to that. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of people who I think were attracted to this show because they realized what a fun template it is. And you can tell, I mean, Julia Garner is like one of the, I guess, hotter would be the term, but like more Yeah, Ozark Americans. Yeah, right. And, And whenever she is in anything, there's always that like, oh, Julia Garner's here. Like, she's really popping off the screen. Let me ask you this. Do you ever get frustrated or... Do you find it delightful, the accumulation of both visual and, like, comic bits? Like, as if it's almost being, like, written as memes throughout the show. Like, everything from, like, the Fuck Lannis program that uh, Justin Theroux is caught in when when Sonya Mizuno comes and finds it. It was incredible, but there's that. There's, um, I mean, even just, like, the way that they show Jonah Hill in the Warren Moon jersey with a, a mullet living on Long Island. And his name is Bruce Marino, so we've got a couple of different quarterbacks going on in there. But uh, I did not get that yeah, reference. Yeah, so it's Thank Dan Marino and Warren Moon. <laughs> Here we go. Um, and it's like this pastiche of, wouldn't this be funny? Wouldn't this be amazing? Wouldn't this be cool? Do yeah. you feel like it all comes together? I don't think tired would be quite the word so much as it was very clearly almost the cart leading the horse. Like, you could tell it was them being like, we want to try this. Yeah. And I don't want to imply that they weren't really thoughtful about this. I mean... No, no. I mean, if anything, I feel like you can... I actually watched some of it with um, subtitles on, and you could hear bits of background dialogue, or read it, rather, that actually does inform 
stuff about like the world that they're living yeah. in, especially in the first few episodes. And I don't know if I am personally empowered to call him a friend of the show since this is not my show, but Zach Barron wrote a yeah. great profile yeah. of Carrie Fukunaga for GQ that included this really fascinating detail that he and Somerville, with like just a few months to go to production, decided to junk half the scripts, yes. which is incredibly stressful and terrifying and <laughs> somewhat admirable. Yes. But I asked Somerville about that, and he basically said that was the part of the show that corresponded with them being inside the experiment and inside the delusion. So clearly a lot of consideration went into, you know, which what kinds of these scenarios would best fit the inner life of these characters. But, you know, I think there's very clearly an element of wouldn't it be fun to do this? Yeah. That I guess that the way I would phrase it is it's unpredictable in terms of what's coming up next, but they were all such straightforward homages that I didn't—it's not going to expand your boundaries of what television can be so much as it's just going to be, oh, TV can be, like, a ton of things at once, and that's really fun and exciting. I think that—I think it was in your piece. There was—you guys discussed a little bit this tension between Carrie wanting to make it as much as possible a 10-hour movie and Somerville kind of uh, wanting to add elements of episodic television to it. It may have been in Abe Reisman's piece. Yeah, and, that was also in my piece. Oh, so yeah, maybe, right. maybe they talked about yeah, it in both uh, pieces, but— But that—I felt like that tension is evident. I feel like, you know, the reset that happens in two where it starts at the beginning of Emma Stone's day that you kind of see Jonah Hill's version of it as they both arrive at the reception area uh, for Nebeldine or whatever the biotech company is where they're going to do this trial. That felt like very TV. That felt like, you know, you saw it from one perspective. We're going to go all the way back and show it to the other perspective, meet in the middle and then have like 15 minutes ahead. Um, But there is something to it that has Fukunaga's kind of more cinematic instincts and cinematic storytelling. And I was kind of wondering about this too, because I think anybody who watches a lot of television now hits that two-thirds into a season and is just like, this really could have been two hours shorter, or this could have been two episodes shorter. Did you ever have that feeling with Maniac that you wished it was a six or an eight episode season rather than a 10. I honestly didn't, which is totally to its credit. I also think like the organization of the season is not as modular as you would think. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't, it's not like one episode is this dream sequence. The other episode is this dream sequence, which I almost think is to its credit. I also think the length of the episodes is really good. It, It tends to hover around 40 minutes, which I think someone characterizes like a bloated streaming half hour, but as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is the same length as like a network hour, like a 42 oh, or yeah. 47 it minute. It never really drags. There's a couple of times where I felt like there's like an anecdote being told and I'm like, this this doesn't need to be like two and a half minutes long. I think it mostly manifested in what I mentioned earlier, which is the pacing, which is that it feels liberated to not introduce a character or an actor as major as Justin Theroux slash Sally Field, who is... I think, one of the bigger names on this cast. And they're okay with waiting a little bit to introduce her because they don't feel like they need to grab everyone's attentions right away. I think, I hate to keep bringing in forever, but, like, you get the same feeling of this is what monkeying with structure in a streaming context looks like in a pretty good way because it's done by people who also have experience in episodic television, mm-hmm. whether that's Alan Yang and Matt Hubbard or Patrick Somerville, who obviously came out of The Leftovers. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about Forever? Sure. Um, I'm, it's clearly on my mind. Yeah, so. well, I wanted to talk about it, too, because I've seen—that is—I watched the whole season of that. And uh, we can say for now, obviously, if you haven't listened for—if you haven't seen Forever, you should probably stop. Because it's a show in which, as soon as you start the season, you are pretty much on a timer of when you're going to hit a massive spoiler. That spoiler is going to determine how you think about the show and the characters. So if you haven't watched Forever— Allison and I both highly recommend that you do, but we're going to talk a little bit about it now. Okay, so you are on the pro forever team. I am. I am pro forever. I did not care for the last two episodes. Interesting. And I, every once in a while, I don't get not. I'm not offended, but I don't sort of get annoyed easily by television. I mean, I'm either in or I'm out. But it's not like I watch something and then I'm and I feel sort of that it, it, it offends my sensibilities. But there is something that happens at the end of this show, which is, and I think that this might be specifically my read of it, so I kind of wanted to hear what you thought of mm-hmm. the end, that dovetails too closely to what I think a lot of, from the mid-aughts to now, dramedies do, which is they really dabble with breaking these characters down and saying some pretty interesting things about love and about what it means to be a human being. And then at the end 
fall back on the safety net of like, but it was really all about the nuclear family at the end. And it was all about like this one person that you've always needed and always will need. And I felt like that kind of plagued a lot of Aptow movies. And I thought at the end of this in a movie, in a show where essentially what the, the premise is, is that what if you got to the afterlife and your life partner was not who you wanted to spend it with. Well, Fred, so Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph play a married couple yeah. named Oscar and June. They're kind of a stereotypical suburban. We're in a rut. It's sexless. Or, I don't know. It's, they don't make it canonical that it's sexless, but that's definitely implied. Sure. And then uh, Fred Armisen passes away. Maya Rudolph goes through the entire grieving process. And just as she starts to recalibrate, she gets yanked back to his side because she also passes away right. and finds that they're in the afterlife together. Where their afterlife lot, looks disturbingly similar to their, their suburban, actual life. boring yes, life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way people felt about the ending, which is, you know, spoiler alert, they go through some trials and then they eventually reconcile and decide that they really do want to spend their afterlife together. Really really depends on how you felt, how convincing the chemistry between Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph was. Mm -hmm. I was so taken away by it, and so I enjoyed their rapport. I think one of the things I actually liked about the show is that it's it's not as simple as Maya Rudolph falling out of love with Fred Armisen. You can feel that she still admires and loves and respects and enjoys spending time with him. It's just that she has this other growing emotional need that he can't quite fulfill. Right. And I honestly do agree that they resolve it a little too hastily. They essentially have, like, one single honest conversation and then recommit to each other. And right. I'm definitely sympathetic to that. But, again, we just talked about how we're always upset the shows are dragging. So, you know, a quick eight-episode turnaround is kind of nice to me. So that she's she's essentially, in the about two-thirds into the show, she, she meets Catherine Keener, who's their, their next-door neighbor, and initially is pretty touchy with her. But then they kind of develop this deep bond. And the bond is largely built over the idea that they were deeply dissatisfied in their past life, in their real life, and that they want something new in this afterlife. And they go off and they figure out a way to travel beyond the typical boundaries of the sort of town that they're living in in and the And one of the things I also liked about Forever is how deliberately sparse and airy and allegorical the world building is. Like, their main community is something called Riverside. They make their way to this weird castle by the ocean called Oceanside. Sure. <laughs> Very creatively. Yeah. And it's the physics of it and the rules and bylaws of it are left deliberately fuzzy so that it can all be a metaphor for their kind of spiritual and all the search all for. the Riverside stuff I really enjoyed I love the fact that they had this like teenager from the 70s because when you die you're sort of trapped in the person as the person you were when you died yes. so this teenager from the 70s is trying to is is essentially their guide through this world, but he's a teenager from the 70s, so he's not necessarily the most articulate or sensitive person. And there's that line that, like, dying young is like getting famous when you're young, and all the dead kids are, like, really arrogant celebrities. Right, right. Yeah, so essentially, you know, Maya Rudolph and Catherine Keener go on this adventure. They find this other place. And in this other place, I, I think if I—this is a sort of— this is a synopsis, so I'm not like getting too deep into it, but essentially it's a place where memory starts to fade. So if in Riverside you're kind of stuck or blessed to be the same person you were yeah, when you Riverside were... is safety and repetition, and Oceanside right. is like, we're going to embrace what's different about yeah, being Julia dead. Julia Ormond is there, and everybody is forgetting what they did when they were alive. They're forgetting, you know, they, they're constantly pushing the boundaries. They're, like, letting trucks run over them. They're and, climbing on the bottom of the ocean, which I thought was a really beautiful visual. Yeah, and it's, it is a more typical idea of, you know, in the afterlife, what if you could do anything and be anything? And essentially, I mean, it, it, it has... Um, What's the what's the um, retreat that Dra Don Draper goes to at the end of Mad Men? Esalen. Esalen. It has a kind of Esalen quality to it. But I thought it was a really interesting thing. And the idea is essentially that, you know, right up until almost the very end of the series, it seems like Maya Rudolph is like, I do did love you, but this is what I need now. And I, this is what I want to do for eternity. And in, in eternity, eternity, I almost want to annihilate this memory of myself. I mean, I also was very, part of the reason why the ending worked for me was I was told that she wanted something different and then she gets to Oceanside is like, I'm not fully comfortable with this either. Like, sure. I don't think she wants to fully leave behind everything about herself because, you know, she had a crappy dead-end white-collar job, but she also, again, like, really loves Fred Armisen's character. Yeah. And I can see getting to that place where everyone, you know, celebrates the newness and blank-slatedness of everything, and she, you know, Maya Rudolph's character is a great great time singing This Is How We Do It, yes, which is just a awesome wonderful scene. scene. Yeah. But I, I also get being like, okay, what I actually want is something different 
from my old life, but also from this, and I still want it with Fred Armisen. And we can negotiate this new frontier together, so we are undergoing change, but we're doing it as a unit. Yeah. Which was really moving to me. I don't know. It yeah, just, maybe I think that you, you identified what it was, which was that there wasn't enough time spent with the reconciliation, I guess. Yeah, and I, I do think it is rushed, but the one conversation they do have felt very honest, where Maya Rudolph's character basically says, like, yes, we had this frustration, but in part, I, I used you as an excuse to not change, and he says, you know, I'm passive-aggressive, and I never wanted to talk about this because I thought if we did, then the relationship would crumble. It just felt like a very very real thing to say and that resonated as truthful enough that I could I could see them getting out of it eventually sure. so I was okay with them getting out of it sooner rather than later. Do you think there's going to be a second season of this? Um I was under the impression that it was going to be an open-ended series but it seems to the people who were involved in it Alan Yang, Matt Hubbard, my Rudolph Fred Armisen seem to be talking about it as more of a closed-ended thing which okay. I would also be okay with but that's because I'm okay with basically anything ending. In this. Yeah, and then this was also, you know, watching forever was that uh, that feeling of like you just mainlining it. And when you start when you get into that world and you start watching it, you just kind of like run through it yeah, because the episodes are pretty two, compact. Yeah, I watched it in two four-episode chunks and that felt like the right way to do it. Yeah, so obviously if you've listened to this part, you've probably seen Forever, but by chance, if you just don't care about spoilers at all, we really recommend Forever. And I'd be curious to know what people think about the ending. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right, talk to you soon. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Amazon Prime Channels. When you join Amazon Prime, in addition to fast-free shipping, you can also have great entertainment delivered to you instantly through Prime Video Channels. With Prime Video Channels, you can add and watch over 100 channels all on Amazon. No cable required, and you only pay for the channels you want. Create a TV lineup you love from premium and specialty channels like Showtime, Stars, HBO, CBS All Access, Noggin, PBS Kids, PBS Masterpiece, Acorn TV, and BritBox. Access tons of fall content like the latest season of Ballers on HBO, season nine of Shameless on Showtime, and even the NFL on CBS All Access. All channels start with a free trial, so you can start a seven-day free trial with any of these channels that you haven't tried yet. Watch your subscription through the Prime Video app on 650 connected devices or online at Amazon.com. So I've been using Amazon Prime channels for a little while now, and the coolest thing is the mix and match part. One of the problems with having a cable subscription is that you're just forced to take on all these channels that you have zero interest in actually having. But with Amazon Prime channels, you get to choose the premium movie channels like HBO or Showtime and Cinemax, so you can watch your movies, you can watch Insecure, you can watch Big Little Lies, whatever you want there with HBO, but you can also mess around and check out stuff like The History Vault, Comedy Central Stand-Up. You can check out all this different stuff, but you only pick the stuff that you want, which is the most essential thing. Only pay for the channels you want with Prime Video Channels. Start your free trials of over 100 channels by visiting tryprimechannels.com slash watch. That's tryprimechannels.com slash watch to start your free trials of over 100 channels with Prime Video Channels. Today's episode of The Watch is sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with a secure smart home like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or Turndown Service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. Or even Worry-Free Getaway Service is my favorite one, which lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules for when you go on vacation. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will DIFY do it for you. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. All right, now I'm joined by my yes. brother, Jason Concepcion. It's Let's actually go. been a while since we've done this. It's been a little bit. It's been a minute. You've been off binging. That's right. You've been off desktoping. That's right. But I wanted to have you on because I got this weird feeling over the weekend, which is essentially, is it possible that DC Cinematic Universe is cool again? When was it first cool? Dark Knight? Dark Knight. Okay. Dark Knight. And then That's it, 10 you, years you know ago when it stopped? When? Dark Knight. <laughs> right after that. Um, Approximately right after that. There's this whole th extracurricular life that people who follow these movies live, mm -hmm. which is essentially there's like the on-screen stuff that you can follow and that you can be into Black Panther and you can be into 
you can be into Doctor Strange, you can be into whatever the movies are that you see. Mm-hmm. But then there's this obviously very full life you can live online reading theories about finished movies and reading gossip and news updates about movies that are in the process of being made, that are being casted, that are hiring directors and hiring mm-hmm. writers. And that's where I kind of arrived at with this DC stuff. Now, they've had some shuffling of the deck at the top. Yes. And obviously, they've gone through some changes in terms of uh, the focus of these movies, which I think everybody initially thought over the last few years was going to be Henry Cavill as Superman, Ben Affleck as Batman. Let's just bang these out. And then let's slowly expand out from the center, but always have the center. And then I think Wonder Woman kind of changed that. Yes. Because Wonder Woman showed them that they don't need to be overly reliant on these known quantities, you can go somewhere new, you can have a different energy. And now they seem to be leaning into that idea whole hog. So I want to kind of like run down this slate and we could just kind of talk about both how we're feeling about these movies, but also if you have any insight into what these movies are based on, because you obviously read a ton more comics than I do. So the first thing we're obviously going to talk about is the Joker movie. This is coming out next October. It's directed by Todd Phillips. Which is a wild sentence to say. Todd Phillips. I don't know if I can properly do this justice. And this this says a lot about where I'm at in my life. But I was was watching Bradley Cooper introducing a Star is Born at Toronto. (laughs) Like the full... (laughs) <laughs> like the full 40 minute video I skipped around a little bit but I spent a lot of time watching Sam Elliott cry because he hadn't seen the movie yet and he was just like <laughs> I don't know about you but when these people start singing just bring something out of me damn um, so we've got this situation where uh, Bradley Cooper's introducing this movie and he's mm-hmm. just like you know thank you so much to everybody who believed in me and it's like there's a the real reason that I'm up here today and that I directed this film is because a few years ago Todd Phillips, who's here tonight, gave me a note. And that note said, I wish you started believing in yourself. Damn. Because you can do anything. You gave me a note similar to that when we were at Grantland. Yeah, but you didn't <laughs> you didn't win like an Oscar. Like, you know what I mean? Like, You're it's right. like, did Bradley Cooper really need that pick-me-up? I think he might have. <laughs> you know, it's been tough for Bradley Cooper being an international movie star starring on Broadway and the Elephant Man. Getting great Wimbledon tickets. Getting incredible Wimbledon tickets, like flexing by making the fourth remake of A Star is Born, getting that greenlit. It's been very tough for his, uh, you know, just for his ego. And now he's a meme lord. He is a meme lord. We are making Brad Brad into uh, social content every day. So anyway, Todd Phillips' inspiration for A Star Mm -hmm. is Born is directing this, uh, this new iteration of The Joker. Are they using Jared Leto? No. They cast the homie Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. The script comes from Scott Silver, who wrote The Fighter in 8 Mile. Which is a... And it has this this cast. Joaquin Phoenix, Robert De Niro, Mark Maron, Bill Camp, Francis Conroy, and uh, Zuzu Beats from Atlanta. And, you know, like, unlike most of these big comic movies, especially these Marvel movies, which are under such tight lock and key, Mm -hmm. we've already gotten... Footage of Joaquin Phoenix screen testing or camera testing for the Joker. So we've seen him in the makeup. And then some like random YouTube site, like Hollywood vlog, had footage from the Joker set of basically a bunch of people rushing out of a dilapidated subway, a.k.a. the subway, subway, (laughs) the subway now. And then Joaquin Phoenix in full regalia comes out, walks towards the camera, and there's like a brawl behind him. To your knowledge, this isn't really drawing from any specific era of DC Comics. It feels like now the Joker has had – there have been various hints about his uh, background, where he comes from, his origin story in the comics, but none of them are really canonical. It seems like this comes from The Killing Joke, which kind of put forth the idea that the Joker was this failed stand-up comic, mm-hmm. which it seems like uh, – Todd Phillips is the Joker is is somewhat based on that. That from what they're saying with Robert De Niro kind of rehashing his King of Comedy uh, character, but from the Jerry Lewis side. Yeah. So it seems to be based on that. That said, even the Killing Joke was like the Joker was an unreliable narrator, so you didn't know if that was really what you're getting. And I get, and I I think that's that is my one kind of fear about this is the Joker over the 70 years of the character's history, has never had this established background, and that's kind of made him cool. Like yeah. Part of what w- was great about Heath Ledger's performance and the characterization of the Joker was that he kept telling these stories, mm-hmm. 
and they were always different. Like, how did I get my smile? How did I, yeah, how yeah, did I get right. stars? Scars, I, you know, my dad did it, and then I did it this way, and he's just, like, changing the stories all the time, and that was really cool. Um, do you lose some of that mystique if you really nail down the Joker's origin? I don't know. We've never really done it. So that's, that's I'm, I'm, that has me slightly concerned in terms of the story. In terms of the character, because like this is just a thing that's never been done, even in the comics, and now yeah. we're going to do it on the big screen. Um, so, and I think that seems to be based on the Killing Joke, which is kind of this legendary uh, Batman one-off story about the background of the Joker, um, what drives him, his kind of like the psychological battle with Batman, and it also contains an extremely troubling scene in which uh, the Joker tortures uh, Barbara Gordon. Oh, right. The daughter. That's of- right. So we don't know if that's exactly what it is, but right. with, you mentioned the King of Comedy, it seems right. like Phillips is actually drawing on this late 70s, early 80s New York my of like After Hours, yeah. Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, with, and the King of Comedy is being inverted with De Niro, who initially had played Rupert Pupkin, who mm-hmm. uh, captured, you know, t- takes hostage uh, Jerry Lewis in, in King of Comedy. But one of the most interesting things about this is this lack of connectivity. You're talking about yeah. canon. You're talking about its connectivity. The whole thing that MCU built itself on was that these movies created anticipation and almost a dependency on one another because they were going to – each movie would set up the next one and each movie right. would you know illuminate something about the one's past. And DC – after all these years of zigzagging with Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon and trying to get something going with Justice League and trying to have that kind of connectivity but making it dark because they wanted to have an alternative <laughs> to MCU has basically been like, fuck that. We're just going to hire interesting people to do interesting stories. And yeah, there's going to be two. Sometimes maybe there will be three Jokers at once at any given cinematic time. There will be a bunch of different actors playing these parts. Now, obviously, you're probably different because you have so much familiarity with these characters sure. through comics that you're like, I don't really care one way or the other if Ben Affleck is the only Batman or Jared Leto is the only Joker. Do you think normies will care? I think normies will slightly care. Although, you know, DC Comics is kind of renowned for its extremely naughty continuity. Like, they've had to reset the entire universe several times. Is that because of like behind the scenes turmoil or just because of like a weird storytelling style? It's just because like the way, the kind of like organic way the company uh, evolved over time. Like they just had multiple titles. Nothing was really synced up. So they had characters that have been working together that all of a sudden when you looked at the backstory, like one is 40 years older than the other (laughs) one, you know, just weird shit happened. And there's a lot of time travel. So, um, you know, there have been a lot of crossover events that DC has put forth in its kind of like constant attempt to reset the universe so that everything lines up. So in that sense, the fact that we don't know where this Joker movie takes place in quote unquote DC continuity, uh-huh. DC movie continuity, is not that out of sync with what actually goes on in the comic books. But I do kind of think that, you know, and I hate to compare the two companies, but it feels like Marvel has set the pace of mm-hmm. what is kind of like the baseline expectation. You know, what do they? What do people want? They want to know that these characters exist and what the world is, the wider world that they exist in. So I think chopping it up in this kind of way, where it's like there's five Batman's and maybe this, maybe the Joker movie takes place in a place where the Dark Knight happened, but maybe it didn't. I think that is slightly weird, con- considering how we perceive these movies now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also pace-wise, they've, yeah. they've set the pace. I mean, tempo-wise, in terms Literally of the amount the of movies that, yeah. that are being put out, I think there's been, what, there's been three this year, right? There mm-hmm. was Black Panther, Infinity War, Ant-Man. and Ant-Man. Uh, and Wasp. And Wa- Ant-Man. Ant-Man and the Wasp, right. So, and then uh, Captain Marvel comes next year, the, the, the end of Infinity War mm-hmm. comes next year, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some. You know, it was interesting to see Bob Iger made some comments this, I think, the last week, in a Hollywood Reporter article where he was basically like, we need to chill a little bit on Star Wars movies. Right. That Star Wars, I mean, I'm reading between the lines, but essentially Star Wars can't function at the tempo that Marvel goes at. But when you think about it, it took Marvel like almost a decade to get all that stuff right Right. and to find the voices of all those characters and to realize that Thor was funny. I mean, they put out, you know, two middling Thor movies before they get to Thor Ragnarok. Dude, they were middling. Ass- they were bad. And the first one is okay. But and then the second one sucks, ba- right? The second one is 
bad. Mallory Rubin loves that one. <laughs> Dark Lord is not, the Dark World is not great. I like parts of it, but Thor Ragnarok is up there. It's maybe the best Marvel movie. It could be, like, arguably the you best You can make one. the argument. And they're all, like, these chatty, funny, I, uh, like, snarky, self-knowing, like, Iron Man yeah, 3, Ragnarok. Like, they have, like, a vibe now. Something happened around Phase 2 where they realized, okay, you know, we're going to have three action set pieces per movie. And our special effects department has basically has that on rails. Mm-hmm. So when we bring in a director, it's just like the character shots, the scenes, yeah. the smaller interstitial stuff. And then we're not even going to worry about the set pieces because we've got that covered. And it allowed them to kind of to have a situation like Thor Ragnarok where – now, two movies in, you can just essentially be like, okay, let's import the stuff that's working from the rest of the MCU and put it in Thor Ragnarok, and it works. And the other thing about that is we understand what role Thor plays in the universe. With the Joker, with Birds of Prey, which feels like it would uh, – it feels like the Joker, if they're using DC continuity, it feels like – and they're basing it off Killing Joke. It feels like the Joker – um, would lead into Birds of Prey, which already has a release date, I believe, 2020 sometime, yeah. because the Joker shooting Barbara Gordon is basically what is part of what um, leads to the formation of that group. So that's just reading between the lines. Maybe that's what's happening. But it would appear to be that this is kind of like this Batman, Gotham-centric offshoot universe is there any interplay with Wonder Woman, with The Flash, with Aquaman? No idea. Probably for the Todd Phillips movie, no. But right. you mentioned Birds of Prey. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about these Harley Quinn movies because everybody saw Suicide Squad mm-hmm. after, you know, it felt like 18 months of nine-minute <laughs> right. trailers. That yeah. movie finally came out. And while I think it did make $700 million, no one came out of it. Everybody like that, came yeah. out of it feeling like they needed to have, like— a stiff drink and like a long right. walk around the block and wash their eyeballs out. Yeah, a bit. but everybody, one hundred percent approval rating for Margot Robbie, yes. right? And everybody loved the Harley Quinn character. And over the last nine months or so, like I think five different Harley Quinn movies have been mm-hmm. kicked around, and one of them is Birds of Prey, which features Harley Quinn, but also features characters like Black Canary, Huntress, and Renee Montoya, and has basically half the actresses in Hollywood have been trying yep. out for these roles, auditioning for these roles. The crazy story behind Birds of Prey is that it's going to be directed by um, someone named Kathy Yan, who's a former journalist who made something of a splash with this short she made called Dead Pigs, which is um, a co-production, China and American co-production. It's this black comedy that I would compare to, I think, the Coen brothers would be the easiest comparison point where it's this, um, you have to see it. I mean, there's a trailer on YouTube, but she's directing Birds of Prey and it's written by Christine Hodson, uh, Christina Hodson, who wrote Bumblebee, which is coming out soon, this Transformers movies uh, with Hilary Steinfeld. And this is the kind of thing that you're just like, oh, you're just, Kathy Yan's going to make a $100 million sure. Harley Quinn movie with half the actresses in Hollywood. And it sounds like it could be a superhero version of Ocean's 8. And that's not something that I think we would have anticipated happening three, four years ago with DC. Yes. I think some of this is, you know, Wonder Woman was the best thing to happen in the DC universe, mm-hmm. cinematic universe in forever. And carrying that energy forward, I think, is shows that DC is at least not completely like tone deaf to this to the way they're being perceived outside of their cocoon. Um in that sense, it is a little strange to make a Joker movie like 10 years after the most lauded like Joker performance like of all time. And then like, <laughs> um, that being said, very interested to see like how Birds of Prey shakes out and, as we said, whether it connects with the rest of the, of the DC universe. And it also feels like a um, – this is a little bit of what Marvel does is take – smaller directors who've, who've done smaller properties and sure. like plug them into their kind of like on the rails uh, production um, structure. Yeah, not and to be just, outdone. They just hired Chloe Zhao to, to direct The Eternals and she just directed like this like very sort of, uh, I guess like Terrence Malicky, but like very like pastoral movie called The Rider right. about a rodeo uh, rider from from this this past year and she's directing the Eternals. Yeah, let's do like immortal gods who like started the universe. You ready? Yeah, the other Harley Quinn movie is a Harley Quinn and Joker movie that's Leto and Robbie and I just have to mention this because 
We like to keep up with director bullshit on this. This, this uh, serious director bullshit. And this is screenwriter bullshit. This is Glenn Fercara and John Rockwell who who are writing the the Harley Quinn yes. Joker movie, and have compared their script to this movie to a, as a combination of This Is Us and Bad Santa. Most now, things that they've worked on. To their credit, they did write those. Yeah, they, right. They work on This Is Us. They wrote Bad Santa. So like they are allowed to reference in director bullshit. <laughs> you are allowed to reference your own work without us casting a light on you but the idea of this is us and bad santa as two things that would happen in a pitch meeting is fucking hilarious to me several things to say about this first of all if you read their original interview in metro in the metro this is like this script may never come out (laughs) (laughs) it was basically like yeah people really we we you know we turned it in people really love it but we got to have to wait for birds of prey and joker yeah. to come out first and then we're somewhere after that and who knows blah 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 it also contains a scene apparently um where dr phil is kidnapped by harley quinn in order to repair her relationship with the joker <laughs> that's funny on one level there's another level where I think it's it's not controversial at all to say that the, the Joker and Harley Quinn's relationship is, like, abusive. Yeah. It's, like, an abusive relationship. So handling that in a comedic way, I guess I need to see it. But it's also one of those, like, okay, I hope this works out yeah, in a way that is not that, troubling. That feels like it could get, get some notes. Yeah, get some notes and we'll see. But, like, it is – I'm wishing them the best. But – this is us combined with Bad Santa, and it's Harley Quinn and the Joker is like, wow, okay. Um, the other ones that are, I wanted to mention uh, were, I need you to explain New Gods to me. Okay, New Gods is— So it's being directed by Ava DuVernay, right. uh, which, you know, she had, she's her follow-up to Wrinkle in Time. But I tried understanding—I tried reading about it, and I need a, I need a translation. Okay, so New uh, Jack Kirby had like a falling out, whatever you want to call it, with Marvel. Went to D.C., in the late 60s, early 70s, and created this um, kind of sprawling uh, arc called New Gods, which is, I guess it's kind of like Marvel's Eternals, but it's these extremely powerful celestial beings, uh, including uh, Doomsday is one of them. Uh, it's the bad guy from, um, what was the bad guy Dark from Side? Justice League? Dark Side. <laughs> was it Dark Side? Who was the bad guy in the in the last? Uh, I think it's Dark Side, man. Is, I think I got you. Anyway, Dark Side is part of them. So, like, some of these properties have been introduced into the DC universe proper, Marvel, uh, DC cinematic universe uh-huh. proper. Um, but that's essentially what it is. It's this. It's Jack Kirby's uh, early seventies creation that is kind of like this sprawling space opera with mm-hmm. these like super powerful aliens. So, I guess if you were going to do a corollary, and this is doesn't match up at all. But if you're going to do a corollary, like a like an elevator pitch to someone who had no idea what this is, you'd say it's kind of DC's Guardians of the Galaxy okay. universe. Yeah, it's the tilt out to the celestial part, yes. it's the the galaxy, so that you can get off of Earth, exactly. change all the rules, change all the, the the sort of parameters and physics of the of the series. Correct. Now, would Dark Side, the Dark Side we've seen, would he somehow uh, be connected to? DuVernay's Eternals? Uh, no idea. But it's interesting to to wonder if that could be the case. Okay. So let me ask you this. As somebody who's into these movies, and there's a couple more we can mention, like yeah. there's Wonder Woman 84, which comes out a month after, or is scheduled mm-hmm. to come after a month after Todd Phillips's Joker. So they're going to go October, November next year. And Wonder Woman 84, to be like incredibly like superficial about it, looks like... Stranger DC things. Right. It's it's set in the 80s. There's apparently an action scene that happens at a mall. Kristen Wiig is the villain. Chris Pine is somehow back. And it just looks, <laughs> it looks dope. I mean, it looks like every, you know, like they're doing like Jane Fonda, let's get physical workouts and kicking ass. And I'm yeah. sure it's going to be phenomenally entertaining. Um, there's this pendulum though with these movies, right? Like we had a certain grounded I know it seems weird to, to say any of these movies are grounded in realism, but there was a certain logic and fi- and, and physical reality to Dark Knight. Right. Right. And then I think over the years, even though I mean, it's been, it was 2008 when Dark Knight and Iron Man came out and then you get these two trees and, mm-hmm. and DC has had a much more stunted growth pattern. But over the years, I think we've been going further and further towards 
it essentially almost being science fiction. So you got Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. and you've got um, Infinity War taking place on all these different planets at various times, and DC if they do New Gods and it goes out into outer space. As a fan of these movies, as a fan of comics in general, do you tend to like the stuff that's more grounded and urban, like hmm. uh, like the Joker, or do you like exploring the the outer frontiers of your consciousness with the more psychedelic stuff? It's interesting in the Marvel realm. I love the celestial stuff because it's disconnected from continuity and they can kind of be crazier. Mm-hmm. In DC, I've always loved the Batman-centric stuff, the mm-hmm. real gritty stuff like Dark Knight, um, Frank Miller's Dark Knight, took place out of continuity. That was a story that didn't – that was just like a kind of dystopian future story about Batman. He's an old man now and broken down and what if he comes out of retirement? That's the stuff that I like through the DC lens. What I think is interesting in terms of the way the two companies have approached their movie properties is like Marvel has – and this is like extremely simplified. But Marvel has uh, more wholeheartedly embraced the fact that these are comic books with colorful costumes. You can – you can criticize them for their color, the tonal color palette of the way they present their movies, but it's very bright and you can see the costumes and they're not afraid to make them look like the costumes from the comic books. Whereas DC, it's like, you know, because Batman is such an entry point for people entering the DC uh, cinematic universe, it's like dark, 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 suicide yeah, Everything is extremely dark. It's yeah. gritty. You like, um, you can't really see the costumes and it feels almost like, I don't want to say they're ashamed of the costumes, but they don't really want to show them off in the same way that Marvel is like unafraid to they're show like, you the costumes. DC costumes are like armor. Yes. And, and Marvel costumes are costumes. They're the kind of things that you would wear as a Halloween outfit, you know? I'm hopeful that DC will find a way to kind of like break the hegemony of like this Batman lens, mm-hmm. which I understand, but um, I, I do feel like it holds them back in terms of like the the kind of breath and vibrancy of of translating the breath and vibrancy of their comics universe to the big screen. Whereas Marvel, it's like they focused on these kind of second tier and third tier characters, um, and therefore they could kind of spread the color palette around. In a sense, like, Marvel movies are probably the first movies that kids see outside of, quote-unquote, kids' movies, right? Like, if you have a kid and you take him and he gets to see some Pixar movies or some animated stuff and maybe some canonical classic Mary Poppins type stuff, if I had a kid, I think the first thing—I mean, I'd probably be, like, one of those parents who'd be like, you want to watch Jaws? Yeah. (laughs) I'd be Bill. Right. You want to watch Aliens? Yeah. (laughs) But if I had a kid, like— I think the first thing I'd be, like, okay with him seeing is something like Guardians. Sure. Right? Whereas DC, you're probably, even though there's nothing, like, I mean, outrageous it, in it, it's still thematically a little bit darker. And and visually darker. The kid's going to come back and be like, why is David Thewlis on fire? You right. Know? It's like, well, I mean, you know, Batman's parents get murdered in, like, 30% of the DC movies, yeah. you know, like, on screen. Which is, you know, could a... a ostensibly be troubling to to young minds. But here's what I'm kind of interested in. It's like, let's say they've got, they do New Gods, they have sure. Matt Reeves' Bat- Batman, which w- may or may not happen based on yes. Ben Affleck's personal health. Get better, Flashpoint, man. directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Excited Jones. for that I'm one. I'm very excited. Let's let that the guys who made Game Night make a Flash movie. Super excited for Don't that one. Don't overthink this. Yeah. Uh, New Gods, Birds of Prey, all the movies that we've talked about, and it's, it's also like Suicide Squad 2, yeah. and I'm sure tons of stuff that we don't know about, Batgirl, Supergirl, they'll probably recast Superman at some yeah. point. They're having, for lack of a better term, they seem to be having fun with it. They seem to be saying... We own this intellectual property. Let's let people have actual ideas about how to execute it. Marvel's in an interesting spot where, especially with the introduction of what had been traditionally Fox's stuff, which yeah. is essentially X-Men. Yep. If you introduce X-Men into this whole thing oh, and man. like you recast X-Men and you introduce them into the Marvel universe. Now, as you and I are probably those are our those are our those, yeah those stories. the X Men are our people like I am know, like, okay if they just want to start over they with should X-Men. start that's exactly what they should do if they just want to start over and slowly integrate X Men in now one other option they have is yes you re- recast mm-hmm. but you basically add X Men in as if it's all already been happening and then all of a sudden you start working X Men storylines into the MCU which. 
could actually be the infusion that the MCU would need if, in fact, Downey and Evans are retiring. Yeah, the way I would, I mean, this is, we're off the rails now, but the way I would love to see it is um, with mutants kind of always existing, but very, very, very underground. They've, you know, they're, um, they're threatened. There's very few of them, and they're extremely powerful. So, of course, they would be, they would be viewed as a threat by various powers out there. So, they want to keep quiet. And I think it'd be really cool, like you said, um, if the, you slowly revealed them um, as existing in the world. You know, mm-hmm. Charles Xavier has this school that's pretending to be a boarding school for gifted kids, gifted and troubled kids. When in reality, it's a training ground for these extremely powerful, like uh, young people. And I think that there, you know, that there is a template for this when. Um, Marvel created the Ultimate Universe in the early 2000s. It was a way to kind of reboot um, their properties and bring them up to date. So um, Ultimate Spider-Man, you know, you know, he's got a cell phone. Mm-hmm. He's like – he's, uh, you know, a cool <laughs> kid. Yeah. Uh, the Ultimates, which is kind of like their version of the Avengers, which is very influential on, on the MCU, whereas um, had Captain America – frozen in ice but comes back and he's like fighting terrorism and then uh, Thor was still a god but people weren't sure if he was like um, schizophrenic or Mm -hmm. not like so there was these um, and a lot of those plot lines came and uh, were translated to the big screen in a certain way and I think the ultimate X-Men was really great and really leaned into like this is a threatened group of people they're being hunted that's the one that Whedon did right no, that was Astonishing X-Men, oh, okay. which is awesome, which they kind of already did. Astonishing X-Men was is basically X-Men 3, which was a travesty. Okay. But that kind of gave you the template of how do you reboot the X-Men from scratch, keeping everything, all the basic ingredients there, um, but allowing a new generation to kind of find it within the context of the modern world and not, you know— have to look back at X-Men 1, which took place in, like, 1967. How do do we do this now? Um, So that that kind of roadmap exists, and it would be cool if they used that to kind of inform what they're going to do going forward. The temptation is going to be there to do the perfect, the platonic version of Dark Phoenix, to do the, I mean, even though Dark Phoenix, I think, is coming out. It's coming out, yeah. And uh, even though they've made Apocalypse and it was an absolute clown show. yes. I still think that there's a real desire on the part of people out there to have seen those stories rendered the way that they know that there is potential for do, to do, you know? And the question really is, is does X-Men go into the same pipeline that the entire other MCU is, which is essentially Black Panther 2 will come out a little faster because just people obviously adore those, that character and yeah. the time is right to strike. But, you know, for the most part there's like a long rotation. You have to like wait for your start for a while there. Or do they turn into a more traditional movie studio where it's like, yeah, we're going to do stuff like Logan and Deadpool and these movies here and there around an MCU and not everything is going to have to adhere to the Kevin Feige vision of the world. My my sense is they would, I mean, Feige has not steered them wrong yet, right? Yeah, right. Like, you right. know, the the strength of the Marvel structure is that it's just that the star is the brand, mm-hmm. right? So you can have Ant-Man and the Wasp and not worry. You can have Thor Ragnarok uh, be the best movie out of the trilogy and the two first movies sucked and it wasn't like this existential crisis. What's going to happen? Oh my God, Thor, people hate him. Like, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about that because Marvel, the brand, is so strong. They've built it into this kind of like powerhouse thing where – Every entry point, whether it be Thor, Guardians, what have you, leads to another part of the universe. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the strength of it. Is like it's this incredible brand synergy. So I, I would imagine they would stick with the Feige vision. Like why, why would you, why would you change it unless there's something contractually where they have to like get seed some kind of agency to, to Fox. But like, why would you, why would you change it? Every, everything's going so well and home like homecoming spider-man homecoming was great yeah like and that's kind of the roadmap of how you can kind of merge these properties that are owned by another studio it's, it's quality we, we yeah. can, quality control is like the thing that they have going for them lack of deviation from a, a, a house style is yeah. what is going against them and then you can bring in a chloe's out you can have a james gunn you can have people working on these movies that have these unique individual voices but more often than not they wind up kind of adhering to yes. a Russo's 
overall a Russo's kind of vibe. So I'll, I'll be fascinated to see. I mean, it's such a crucial time because there is a possibility that we don't get a Guardians 3. Right. We probably won't get another Iron Man movie. We're probably done with Captain America. Yep. All these guys are probably done after They're the next movie. doing this movies. for a decade I now. can't imagine now Ruffalo is going to make a Hulk movie. So a lot right. of the movies that are these people, if you started watching Marvel movies when you were 13 and you're in your early 20s now, the, what you know of that that universe is gone. Right. It's, it's time be gone for the soon. bench to. St- there's and, you need to be growing the bench at this yeah. point. Yeah, and now you're going to have Black Panther and Captain Marvel, and you know, and and we'll see what else. We'll see what happens with the introduction of the Fox Marvel characters. I can't wait. All right, thanks I for joining me, man. Thank you for having me. Today's episode of The Watch was sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or Turndown Service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.